welcome back to St. Paul's Hospital Morning Report podcast. As a reminder, this podcast is brought to you by the St. Paul's Hospital Foundation. Thanks again to Nikki Thorpe, our incredible sound engineer, for taking care of the sound for us. And producer. And, and producer. producer. Thank you. Overall talented lady. We're going to do a little round of introductions, and then we have an incredible case, apparently brought to us by Dr. Terry Chu, who's currently a fellow in the general medicine program. Hey, Danny. Hey, Barry. How you guys doing? Welcome you? back. Yep. Oh, perfect. Another, you ready for another big case? Uh, yeah. I'm looking forward to Terry's presentation. Good. Thanks, Kat, for joining us again. Yeah, good to be back. And welcome to Terry. You ready? Is this going to be a real stumper? Uh, I don't know, but thank you for having me, and thanks for inviting me today. I'll do my best. Thanks for coming, Terry. Take it away, Terry. Okay, and just before I start the case, um, some details of the case have been modified to protect uh, patient confidentiality. Our case today, our patient is a 70-year-old female who is in the emergency department because when her daughters called them for their usual weekly phone call, she had a lot of trouble finding her words. She was very slow to speak and wasn't making very much sense. So they went to visit her and found that she was very slow to walk. And so they called the ambulance and brought her to the emergency department. When you take the history, she was last well about six months ago. She took a long trip through Hong Kong, Taiwan, Japan, and felt well after she got back, but then developed what looked like a shingles-like rash in the T4, T5-ish dermatome. She was treated with a chlorosyl valcyclovir, and the rash went away. But ever since then, her daughter said she's not been the same. Fatigue, decreased appetite, 10 to 15 pounds of unintentional weight loss. And then two days ago, she had a phone call similarly where she had some trouble finding her words on the phone, but her daughters thought maybe she was just a little bit tired and didn't think too much of it until they called her today. And she was very confused, a lot of trouble finding her words. And so they did go to visit her and found that she had a lot of trouble with her balance. And therefore, they called 911 and brought her into the emergency department. A bit more about her background. She's pretty healthy. Um, she had a VSD diagnosed uh, when she was very young, unrepaired, and otherwise no medications, no allergies. She's ethnically Chinese. She's from Hong Kong. She's a retired office worker, and she's completely independent at baseline and lives with her husband. No substance use, cigarettes, alcohol, or other recreational substances. And so going further into a review of systems, no localizing infectious symptoms other than that rash six months ago. Um, no fevers, no chills, no cardiac symptoms, no respiratory symptoms such as cough or dyspnea, and then no real um, joint symptoms, rashes, or otherwise. It's just mainly this word-finding difficulty and this balance difficulty. So when you see her in emergency department, this lady uh, appears younger than her stated age, but otherwise not in any acute distress. Her blood pressure is 154 on 86. Her heart rate is 120 and regular. Her respiratory rate is 16, and her oxygen saturation is 98% on room air. Her temperature is 38.5 degrees Celsius. She speaks fairly good English and is oriented to person and place, but her speech is very slow when you talk to her, and she has a very flat affect. She does not seem to stress at all by the fact that she's in the emergency department. Head and neck examination, so um, neck is supple, no lymphadenopathy, no rashes, no oral ulcers. And then cardiovascular examination is normal. Normal S1, S2 heart sounds. Don't really hear a murmur that you would expect with VSD and no extra heart sounds. She appears euvolemic and there's no pedal edema. Her lungs are clear. Her abdomen is soft, non-distended, non-tender. There is no hepatosplenomegaly. Dermatological examination, you notice a little bit of libido reticularis to the legs, but no active joints, no other notable rashes, and a detailed lymph node exam in the head and neck as well as the 
axilla and the um, groin is negative. A detailed neurological exam, pupils are 3mm reactive to light, normal extraocular movements, remainder of the cranial nerves are normal, and she has normal strength, sensation, and tone to the major muscle groups in the upper and lower extremity. Cerebellar testing is difficult because she has a little bit of a postural tremor on the left side, but no obvious uh, dysmetria or dysdiatokinesia. When you get her up to walk, um, her gait is quite shuffling and slow, but she does not fall over to one side or another. Reflexes, uh, sorry, I forgot to mention, and the upper and lower extremities are normal and toes are down going bilaterally. Any initial thoughts? Um, just a clarification. Yes, of course. The The word finding, is it, maybe you can just clarify what you mean by word finding? Yeah, so when you try to talk to the patient yourself, um, you notice that it seems like she knows what she wants to say, but it takes her a long time to say it, and when she does, it's only one or two word answers. Um, and her daughters say this is very abnormal for her. Usually she speaks fluent English and is able to give us complete sentences, and it makes sense. But can you clarify, can she actually name objects? Yes. So during the uh, neuro exam, if you show her a pen or a watch, she's able to name it, but just very slowly. It'll take like five, six, maybe seven seconds for the word to be produced. But, but it's accurate when yes. she produces it? Yes. And is this what the daughters have heard? Yes. Just a slowness in her response? Yes. I think if neurology saw this person, they'd also want to know about like, how, how's this person's reading and comprehension and kind of like the kind of more receptive aspects of speech? Yes. Any so, problems there? Yeah, so um, we did not test reading uh, up front. She was able to write a sentence uh, slowly, but and her writing was normal. We did not do arithmetic or uh, further reading or detailed vocabulary testing. And maybe clarification on her gait, assuming her Romberg was normal, mm -hmm. her posterior column assessment was normal? Yes. And her gait was shuffling, which means, can you characterize it a little bit more? Yeah, so... Um, like a perp walk, or...? <laughs> so, just very small, frequent steps. Never um, heard that. <laughs> That's new. Me neither. Yeah, but yeah, just very uh, small, frequent steps in low amplitude. Um, her Romberg was normal, and her posterior columns were normal. And when she was standing, and you actually tapped her on the forehead or pushed her for instability, was she able to continue to maintain her posture? She was. And I think what people are getting at here is is we're trying to ascertain whether this woman has a focal neurological deficit, whether there's an identifiable lesion. And I get that impulse. When I hear this story so far, I'm not thinking about a focal neurological problem. Like, I think she's got a global problem. I'm approaching this as an altered mentation with fever and new shuffling problem, that, which I, honestly, right now I can't integrate all those things together. But I mean, it, I guess it crossed my mind, but this I'm not... I'm not sniffing out a focal neurological issue as it stands right now. And I guess the other attractive part of the story is the suggestion that she's got zoster and whether the zoster is in an immune-compromised host or whether this is a zoster that's heralding some sort of systemic condition that's related to the zoster, because that's the other aspect in a lady who has a VSD and who's traveled. I think to Steph's point, like the whether it's a focal lesion or not, maybe that isn't the most important thing. But I still, in the presence of libido reticularis, which is somewhere in the spectrum of like vasculopathy, I am wondering whether or not this is a global problem, a multifocal or multi-territorial problem, or a focal deficit. So like, there's a neuro something going on, mm -hmm. I think, and that that could be like very deep biology, like a metabolic there's something encephalopathic or or not and I'm not a great neurologist but 
I am worried about multi-territorial problems here with slowed speech, some left postural tremor, the shuffling gait. Mm -hmm. It could be, but it would have to be like multiple territories. So it it could be very bad news. And the history of shingles, trying to figure out exactly where that slots in for me in terms of its relevance, Mm -hmm. it can come with certain CNS complications that we are going to have to think about as we move forward. So just to spell it out, Danny, you're thinking sort of CNS vasculitis. I am, I am <laughs> trying really hard to avoid some kind of VZV vasculopathy vasculitis, which I'm I'm put low on the list mm-hmm. in the presence of the libido. I'm thinking of some kind of coagulopathic state like antiphospholipid or we'll see something else, PAN, those things. But I'm trying to keep it non-rheumatologic. I'm not doing a good job. (laughs) If this is PAN, I'm going to go have a crown made and I'm going to put it on your head the next episode. I'd be amazed if that turns out to be the diagnosis. I think if we're guessing, we're not guessing. I think the the description you're giving to me, when I listen to it, it sounds like someone who has advanced Parkinson's. If If I didn't know and walked in the room, that would be my initial thought of my observation. So I think our challenge is to unpackage this Mm -hmm. to decide how we got there. I think if you took a hundred people who presented this way to the emergency department, the vast majority of them, 80 or more of them, would be people who had previously undiagnosed either microvascular disease or or slow Parkinson's, whose neurological deficits are then unmasked by an acute infection like a urinary tract infection. I would bet that would be the most likely sort of causal problem here. Because this is a special case that's being presented, I, I doubt that that will be it. But I do, you know, if, if I'm, if the point of this podcast is to show people how we're thinking through a case, yeah. that would be the first thing I would, I'd be going after the horses. Yeah. So in a woman of this age, who's otherwise previously well, something like a UTI or, or another slow indolent infection would be the first place that just use tachycardic and febrile and, and common things are common. Yeah, I think I given totally what we know before to deciding whether that VZV infection like was anything related or whether it was separate and then maybe this is a new presentation of something like Parkinson's that was there all along and then now we're just starting to notice. But. I guess the, the unusual component of this is the rapidity of the whatever mm-hmm. this, this presentation over months. The description you're giving is someone who's had the disease for a long time. Because you're presenting here, because it can't be something very straightforward, let's hear some more. We get some uh, blood work back. CBC includes a white blood cell count of 3.1, lymphocytes 0.6, the remainder of the differential is normal, hemoglobin 105 with an MCV of 93, and a platelet count of 110. She has the CBC from a year ago, at which point her hemoglobin was 128, her platelet count was 171, and her white blood cell count was already low at 2.9 lymphocytes is 0.8. Her um, electrolytes come back with a sodium of 127, potassium of 4.4, and a chloride of 97. Creatinine is 85. Liver enzymes are normal. Extended electrolytes are normal, including a calcium. INR, PTT are normal. TSH is normal. And LDH is slightly high at 318. Her CRP was done. This is 19.4. Her albumin is 21. There was a urinalysis done. That is normal. ECG shows sinus tachycardia and a chest x-ray is unremarkable. I don't know if that helps any further, but I will admit, um, as a first-year resident on CTU seeing this case, I was quite lost. 
I was hanging my hat on something infectious, like a meningitis encephalitis, but I, I wonder if there's more to the blood work that I didn't appreciate up front. I think that's a totally legitimate like first thought though, right? Yeah. This person had a history of VZV that was mm-hmm. apparently treated. They're coming in with a Cersei picture. Mm-hmm. They're unwell. They have kind of this weird pattern neurologic deficit, but a neurologic deficit of some kind. Uh-huh. I think that's totally appropriate for a resident to think of let's rule out the really nasty common things Mm -hmm. that I want to make sure we've covered for before the staff gets in or the senior resident sees this person so I think that's a great place to start I totally agree and then maybe including some more unusual things with we talked about possible immunosuppression and we now have that pancytopenia to go on so that would maybe help you think about more rare etiologies for meningitis or encephalitis yeah, I'm impressed by her albumin. I Me think too. That, you know, I think that uh, this gives some support to the fact that this has been happening for some time, whatever this is. And so whether we're dealing with one this or a few this isn't become these, I don't know. But at this point, that's where I'm at. I'm, that's what I'm looking at. Okay, so um, a bit more information. Like you said, ruling out the life-threatening things overnight. Um, she gets a CT, CT angiogram at the head and neck. No infarcts, no focal stenoses uh, or occlusions or dissection. Essentially a normal CT head and CT angiogram. She then goes on to have a lumbar puncture overnight. So her white blood cell count is elevated at 14. 81% lymphocytes. Her protein is slightly elevated, and, and the units reported as milligrams per liter, so 461, with a normal range between 15 to 450, so touch elevated. Glucose is 2.7. Initial gram scene is negative. Additional studies on the lumbar puncture are sent, including uh, culture and uh, viral PCR, and these are pending at the time. This is too attractive to pass out. Passover in someone who's visiting Southeast Asia, who's Southeast Asian, who presents with a lymphocytosis and fever over a chronic period of time. In our last podcast, we talked about this over and over again. So I think that this is something that we need to pay attention to. Just just to spell that out, you're talking about tuberculosis. Correct. Which I think, interestingly, we forgot to mention when we were first talking about things. And I think that was the first thought that went through my mind when I first heard where she was from. And then I think I got distracted by some of the physical exam and focusing on the neurologic. So um, definitely good to bring that back. Does the lymphocytosis trigger anything else other than TB for, for any of us? Well, I guess it does. But I, I mean, I'm, I should have finished my thought because it, it's, it's a low glucose as well as a, a lymphocytosis. So there is a differential. But given her presentation, I think that the top of that differential would continue to be TB, meningi- meningitis. We have no suggestion that she's had a fungal infection or that she's had a malignancy. So uh, it's possible. But I mean, we have nothing to support that. Maybe like a broader question that I'm asking is like, if it a lymphocytic um, LP, does that change the treatment you're going to give that person overnight based on this story? Like, what would you guys be starting in the ER? This is going to be an unpopular opinion, but I would not. I don't think that giving this person vancomycin, ampicillin, blah blah blah, <laughs> makes any sense. Giving her a course of acyclovir is not wacky until you have PCR results coming back. That's probably what I would do, although I think 90% of people in my position would give this person vancoceftraxone, something else, ampicillin, whatever, until they have negative cultures, not just a gram stain. 
I, I think I would do that. I would be uncomfortable with, at my stage at least, with not treating her for that, especially because we now have a sample that we can look at and test things. Granted, it'll be tough if we need to go back for more testing, but at least we've got that sample, so we're not going to be obscuring that. We've also talked about this with, with previous cases, I think, where every time someone is like in any sort of way a fever and a returning traveler, and obviously the travel is somewhat remote, but like not that remote, we would always kind of check are there any specific infections to the places that she's gone to make sure that we send those tests because the LP, like you want to do the LP as few times as possible Mm -hmm. and send that all up front because it all takes a long time to come back. So you want to do that all in one go. So I think I would definitely go online, check CDC or whatever your specific source is, look for any specific infections, ask family about was she vaccinated against endemic infections? No. We're going to send those things anyways, even though, like, I don't know a lot about perhaps those infections, mm-hmm. but we should make sure we think about those things, too. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. The other point, I think, is having this information now, I think I'd be more specific about the questioning of, because, I mean, it's like I visited Canada, United States, and Mexico. And so, gee, I understand those continents or those countries so i'm not sure was she on you know what did she do where was she specifically visiting was she ill at the time what was she eating the very specific questions that might give us a clue Mm -hmm. is what danny's talking about about where to go otherwise we're going to have uh, a broad spectrum of things that that you know she she never did sunbathe or she you know whatever there's also this thing about shingles, you know, she's had, sh- and I'd want to know, like, how did we arrive at the diagnosis of shingles? How sure were we that this was yeah. shingles? Um, is there some other mm. shingles mimic that was kind of messed up initially that's now yeah. kind of throwing us off the scent of what could have been the actual, like, sentinel problem? Great thoughts all around, I think. Uh, so what ended up happening overnight was she was uh, given kind of empiric uh, bacterial and viral meningitis coverage. She was admitted overnight. Fortunately, we didn't get a chance to ask her detailed travel history questions as her family left and she wasn't able to give us very much history beyond that. The daughter did come back the next morning with two additional pieces of history. Um, on the travel part of things, it didn't sound like there was anything out of the ordinary with her travel, places she's always been to before, no uh, exposures with hikes, swimming, or um, fungal-like exposures, and no raw foods or anything unusual. But uh, the daughter did say that she had an on-and-off dry cough that they did not mention the first day, and that they described something what sounds a lot like uh, Raynaud's phenomenon, in the sense that when she goes out to the cold, some of her fingers turn white, and this has been bothering her for quite a few years, but they did not mention that the night before. I don't know if that changes your thinking or any other investigations that the team might want to do. Or Danny thoughts. is thrilled right now. I mean, when <laughs> He's got a huge he, smile on his when face. When you said Levito Reticularis, he, he, he started it on his sheet. He was very excited. And now with the rainouts, Danny is just he's having a field day here. I actually don't like. <laughs> I no longer enjoy when the cases may hinge on something I'm supposed to know a lot about, but I'm like maybe shakier than I should be. So like sometimes it's... It's, this podcast is a lot of pressure. It's a lot. <laughs> I haven't even recovered from last week when uh, Kat did her case. I, I can't. No, but I would say, you know, I, I don't think these are, they haven't cracked the case for anyone here. Like the dry cough, I don't know, maybe TB is a little bit more, you know, tempting, but I, I don't think it changes my post. There's no post revised history probability here that's changed a whole lot. You know, and I, I would say this, given that history, uh, I'm not sure any serology that we had now, right now that we ordered would 
change my approach to the case, however positive or however negative was. So I'm not. I I still would be more concerned about the travel history um, and the historical facts and her presentation. I don't. As I said, that's how I would approach it. Yeah, you said cough, and then I thought more likely TB, and then you said Raynaud's, and I thought about all these rheumatologic things, but then so many people can have Raynaud's, and it'd be totally unrelated to. So I think I would want to know sort of, you know, was that new? Had she had that her whole life? Like, that might help me a little bit. Mm -hmm. Maybe not. The family isn't able to give a clear sense of how long it's been going on for, but it sounds like they've noticed over the last couple of years at least. Um, so given these new findings, the patient is uh, put on airborne precautions, uh, three samples for uh, MTB sputum are given, although she's not having a cough that's reliably producing sputum. And then she goes on to have a CT chest. This shows um, bilateral apical pleural scarring, patchy ground glass with septal thickening, small bilateral pleural effusions, as well as a small pericardial effusion. No evidence of active TB in the lungs, it says. And it also mentions mild right hilar lymphadenopathy, as well as an increased number of bilateral, axillary, and subpectoral lymph nodes. Findings could reflect a reactive etiology, however, a lymphoproliferative disorder cannot be entirely excluded. Do you know if that CSF was sent for cytology or anything? When? Yes, I, I believe so, actually, and I don't have the results for that, but um, it maybe would have done, been done on a repeat uh, LP down the road. Yeah. Has this, like, narrowed the actual groups of diseases we were worried about initially for anyone? Because I, I still think that all categories are still, like, are totally in play. Obviously, like, we will each have kind of a different rank order based on our personal pretest probability for these diseases, but I still think the differential is, like, surprise. I'm, I'm trying to, like, in my head, cross things out, be like, oh, okay, it's not uh, in, infectious anymore, but I can't. I, I think we still have a couple of categories that we're going to have to work through, and a lot of that is going to be taking the abnormalities that we have and kind of chasing those out to, like, the, their natural conclusion, like, we have an elevated... LDH and a normocytic anemia, but also pancytopenia, but normocytic anemia, like we're going to want to have a smear, a B12 perhaps, a flow cytometry for lymphoproliferative disorders, potentially. I think we're all going to have a different maybe way that we work that up, but I'm not sure that I've actually closed off any categories yet. Yeah, I think big categories like infection or malignancy or autoimmune are still up there, but something like maybe a straightforward kind of VZB encephalitis, if you can call that straightforward, or like Parkinson's disease, those have definitely kind of moved down what I was thinking at this point. So I, I, I think what I would do at this point is I'd, we've talked a lot about etiology, but we actually haven't characterized the syndrome. So her, the imaging that we have hasn't been of use with the exception of the CT of her chest. So I think I would, I would look to do an MRI and I would look to do an EEG, both of which I think would be helpful in giving this presentation is an odd presentation but but I think it would be helpful to me to maybe put a category on it I think the other thing so now it sounds like people are saying malignancy is on our differential diagnosis but it hadn't been 10 minutes ago and the scan for me actually does not I realize that they're saying this pattern could be in keeping with a lymphoproliferative disorder but it had not previously been on my differential diagnosis the lady presented with fairly acute confusion Mm -hmm. I realized that she has findings, including her cytopenias and her low albumin that could be in keeping with the malignancy, but it wasn't previously really anywhere on my differential, and it remains not on my differential diagnosis, rightly or wrongly. I just, you know, it's it's something that it's there. There's a comment from a radiologist, and I will park it, but this is not something that is strongly persuading me to, to think that this woman has an under, a new underlying cancer. 
I guess the only thing I'd say is that she has, if she ha if this is Zoster, then, she, then it suggests that she's immune compromised, and that would then include lymphoma, HIV, whatever, I, something that's compromised her, and that's maybe we didn't explain it uh, or didn't say it out loud, but maybe that would be the malignancy that we were considering. Although I, I think I maybe have a little bit of framing bias from another case where we had a real challenge differentiating between TB or malignancy in the CNS. And I think if she did have a malignancy that had spread to the CNS, that could potentially cause a more kind of acute change neurologically if there'd been something else in the background that's causing this low albumin and the cytopenias and um, her LDH to be up. But um, you're right, I guess it was something kind of brought in by the radiologist that I was maybe thinking about because of previous cases. Okay, so to try and help narrow down the categories a little bit, starting with the CNS stuff, so she, uh, she gets an MRI of the head with gadolinium, no infarct or hemorrhage, no abnormal enhancement of the brain or its coverings, non-specific white matter changes that are likely reflective of moderate small vessel disease. She gets on an, e an EEG on the same day, which says essentially normal in drowsiness, sleep, and wakefulness. So, there is Sorry, no, yeah. a normal EEG? Yeah, it also mentions that there are some intermittent bursts of generalized slowing. It says it could be due to excessive drowsiness or a mild diffuse cerebral dysfunction of a non-specific etiology cannot be ruled out. There are no epileptiform discharges or seizures in this recording. To round out the hematological side of things, B12, uh, peripheral smear, reticulocytes. Reticulocytes were low, but the other parts of the workup were normal. At this point, neurology and uh, hematology become involved. And I think neither party is particularly sure, much like I was at that point, about uh, which direction to take this. So maybe just for, maybe we could direct what we would do yeah. at this point. I mean, we have some information that quite revealing. It's interesting that neurology and infectious diseases are debating something that we have when we have pulmonary findings. Um, so th that's the one place we see potentially some activity with her nodes and uh, maybe um, helpful to explore that aspect. I don't think infectious diseases is going to give us a different list of choices that we were already talking about and I don't think neurology is going to be able to be certain. They'll, they'll say I think what we're saying. Now correct me if I'm wrong. Please correct me. No, no, <laughs> that, this is exactly where we were. And as an R1 in the middle of the case, there were a lot of specialists involved at this point, um, neurology, hematology, ID, and um, we were pulled in a lot of different directions. But the things at this point that stood out to me now were, and it's also good to look at now about the day and a half, two days has passed, how has the patient changed? And she's about the same, really. Her fever, She's on this empiric antibiotic coverage, but there's not been a big change in her status. She's still very slow, one word answers, and her fever has gone away, but the rest of her clinical picture is the same, which to me is pretty interesting. If this were some, a diagnosis that's acute, something that we're missing and not treating, we would expect something different. I, would, I think at this point with the other folks involved, I think from neurology, because I would say my neuro exam is like a, maybe a pass, like <laughs> average. I would say, like, I would ask for a little clarification of the deficit and, like, yeah. what is the syndrome that neurology says? Does neurology say this person has encephalopathy? Yeah. And, you know, some find a little bit of finding on EEG. Is it encephalopathy or is it actually multifocal but, but localized? Mm -hmm. Is it nonvascular? Like, what exactly can cause these particular... I don't know. These symptoms actually seem fairly specific, like slow um, speech. Specifically, yeah. left-sided tremor. Specifically, like what's 
what's yeah. the syndrome that they describe? And then I would use that to try and look up a way that these things connect to each other. I think that would be really helpful because otherwise I'm still going off of my vague uh, interpretation of the of the neurologic syndrome. Yeah. The one that I've come up with, not that a neurologist tells me it is. Yeah. Absolutely. It's a really good point. And I think like four or five members from the neurology team examine her um, and they, they agree that it's a non-focal, it's a generalized encephalopathy that uh, is more in keeping with her findings and with the EEG findings that you mentioned. And do they comment whether this is a Parkinsonian-like picture or do they ever mention that those words? They don't mention that. They don't mention that. With her, her tone was fairly normal and it was mainly just the shuffling gait that would have suggested that, well, but you, they didn't seem to you, mention You mentioned tremors. She had a flat... Uh, affect. Uh, yeah, uh, absolutely. Had, yeah. So she had the slowing. So she she had the gait. Mm -hmm. um, so they didn't. It wasn't syndromic to them. No. So maybe I can just summarize at this so point. She, sorry, one other yeah. thing. She, she her she her eye movements were normal. So she didn't have a supranuclear palsy. No. In any of this. No. Okay, so maybe I can summarize at this point because we have a lot of information. Seventy-year-old female um, with zoster and then chronic or subacute decline in neurological function, as well as objective findings of tremor, shuffling gait, and fever on examination, and then a, a significant pancytopenia on her blood work, in addition to um, low albumin and high CRP. Uh, again, the broad categories of infection, autoimmune, and uh, malignant uh, remain. And at this point, someone on the team brought up the point about Raynaud's and Levito reticularis as being potentially driving us towards an autoimmune workup to try and explain all these findings. What do you guys think about that? We'll let Danny have the first crack at this. <laughs> I think that when someone is quite sick and surzy, mm -hmm. uh, having the maybe the like first impression they look Levito reticularis but actually aren't, mm. That's that's what I hearing it on the phone. I'd come in being like, still, it's probably infectious, but like we'll come in and have a look because the diseases that result in libido reticularis are relatively rare compared to all the infections that someone can pick up at seventy years old uh, on a background of shingles. So let's make sure it's actually libido. Let's make sure it's actually Raynaud's. Mm -hmm. So get a little bit more history there, and I think those things would just prompt very specific physical exam. So pulses in all four extremities. I do capillaroscopy to see if there's any abnormal loops uh, or any abnormal findings. Those things would really sway me to say, like, actually, she probably does have true Raynaud's, and it's pathologic Raynaud's that narrows our list somewhat mm -hmm. or would sway us. And if we do that exam and we don't find anything, then they are still question marks as to whether they're true sy symptoms or not, and we have to work up the case. We may have to do two things at once work up the case for the very common things that cause encephalopathy and SIRS, as well as kind of chase down the unusual other parts of the case. I think it's reasonable to assess those things, but I want to know if they're real or not. You know, my own take so far is that this is not an autoimmune or connective tissue disease, vasculitis. I think this is a chronic infection that we just don't yet have like the right clue for. I don't think we've done, like, I, I think there are a number of chronic infections that are described in Harrison's Internal Medicine and I'm up to date, the best doctor in the world, but <laughs> that I just don't know. And so I would be looking into, and, and so also it's been mentioned that we think this lady is immunosuppressed. I don't know why, like, why do we think that? Just because she got shingles? Mm -hmm. Oh, shingles one time, I don't know, 70 years old. I would say, like, she's of un 
defined immune competence, but I'm not I'm not right now treating this woman as though she's immune compromised. I just feel in my gut she's got a chronic infection and I'd want to better define exactly, exactly, exactly what she did when she was traveling, how she lives her life here, what she's likely been in contact with, and then go through carefully a list of chronic infections that are reasonable for her to have been exposed to. Yeah, there's just, I don't get a whiff of of a rheumatologic problem here. Well, my concern would be that we would actually find positive serology, we would do this, but she then would fall into the category of any other patient that comes in with known rheumatologic disease, lupus. With fever and a change in mental status, we're still back at the same place about is this the disease or is it infection or is it something else? So I think it might be helpful. I'm just not sure at the end of that workup, I'd say, aha, this is the diagnosis, and I would agree with Steph. Terry, do we have any of those CSF cultures or PCR yes. or anything to help us? Sorry, you were going to say something. No, 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 not at all. I was going to say, do we have any of those? Yes. So another day passes. Um, the CSF cultures for bacteria, viral PCRs, and someone sent a microbacterium PCR as well are negative. Uh, TB cultures are pending. Um, blood cultures are negative. HIV is negative, And no other localizing source of infection has been found. So this is day three of the admission now. But, but, but here's this lady in isolation. Yeah. Are we going to deal with that aspect of her disease? So she's able to give one sample now, and this uh, mycobacterium tuberculosis sample is pending. Is there consideration to do be more aggressive with other than just waiting for the spit? Yeah, so that thought had not crossed the team's mind at this point because on uh, this is day three of the admission now. She has on the ward in the middle of the day what uh, sounded like a seizure event. So her daughter is in the room. Um, all this workup is being discussed, neurology, rheumatology, and we're going through all the labs like we are now. And she has about a two-minute episode where she has uncontrolled rhythmic movements of her jaw, and um, she's unable to speak, unable to... Uh, interact with the people around her and it seems like she loses awareness completely but the seizure itself does not involve any other parts of the body again it lasts for about two minutes after which she's extremely confused and is not able to answer questions at all i may be able to read mary's mind right now if someone has like jaw weird jaw movements cns something i think uh, he is always on the lookout for cns whipples and you can get the oculomasticatory myodysrhythmia in whipples which would be like an incredibly rare finding. I just, I don't think that's what it is. I'm just curious. Is that what you were thinking? Yes. Okay, great. Oh, but, wow. but, ha- but having Mind said meeting. that, I reminded myself that Whipple's is a disease of Caucasians and a disease of males. So she would, ha- not only is it rare, and I've never seen it, but she would, this would have to be, maybe you've written it up. Maybe that, but that's. I'm afraid not. Yeah. Uh, that thought did not cross our minds at that time. And I, I don't think it like, yeah. It should have like <laughs> we're 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 really joking around because yeah. uh, we uh, we have actually I I saw a Whipple's case here in the in the chief clinic yeah. wow that we shared yeah. it did not have the the CNS <laughs> right. involvement but that's something we're always on the lookout for gotcha okay so now that's one episode she had two more of them on the ward and neurology was actually there on the ward with us so they witnessed two of these episodes and they do agree that these appear to be seizures but that you know what I that. That's helpful only in that, like, it, it just confirms kind of what we already knew. Like, mm-hmm. people with encephalopathy can also have seizures. Yeah. So I don't think that that's really changed anything. It may speak to progression, perhaps, severity, perhaps. But otherwise, the, the differential doesn't change that she had seizures. 
Yeah, and I mean, you'd expect that if she did have a kind of more straightforward infection that we were treating appropriately, I then would less likely think that she'd progress to having seizures as opposed to if there was something still persisting or getting worse. Yeah, and to me, I guess the issue is that we're sort of, we're, we're, we're categorizing her illness and putting it into boxes, but we're still not actually uncovering the box that's got some of the information in it, and that's her respiratory status and her lymph nodes. I mean, we seem to be willing to describe as dermatology the color of the rash and where it is, <laughs> but we really haven't, you know, we're, we seem to just not be going there. Help us. Barry is going to blow a gasket <laughs> if you don't call a respirologist yeah. soon. He's going to lose his mind and flip this table over. So, so you better have called a goddamn <laughs> respirologist. So on the f- so I think there are two res- two specialists that are being recommended here. I think one is uh, respirology to look into the lung findings and the isolation and the TB side of things. But also there's the let's make sure this is real levito. Let's make sure this is real Raynaud's. So rheumatology comes along as well. So rheumatology this happens... must have been a weekday then. <laughs> oh, it is totally a weekday. And, and su- surprisingly or not surprisingly, rheumatology gets there first. Oh, <laughs> Alright, a lot of solid burns. Yeah. <laughs> um, and they say like, you know, the history is pretty convincing for um, Raynaud's and this does look like libido in day three of her illness. So they send all of the tests and respirology is still doing their bronchoscopy. Raynaud's status? Uh, this, is, uh, this is someone in status with Raynaud's? Uh, <laughs> Yeah. So the hands continue to be white? Her head turned white. <laughs> I guess they didn't actually get to see it physically, but it's more the historical element. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Historical yeah. status. Yeah. Really yeah. Nice. <laughs> yeah. So, so they do send all the tests. So um, ANA is positive, 20, so this is strong positive. Double-stranded DNA is positive. Anti-Smith is positive. SSA and SSB are both positive. Antihistone is positive at 335, with the upper limit of normal being 100. C3 is 0.24, which is low, and C4 is 0.05, which is low as well. ANCA is negative. Rheumatoid factor is negative. Ferritin is 3,000. Like I was saying earlier, this is clearly a rheumatologic. (laughs) 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 I don't know. What is that? I don't know. I think the question I'd have at this point is whether I was going to pull the prednisone lever. Yeah. um, And... uh, even with the questions of whether this is all related to uh, to a connective tissue disease or not, it wouldn't be wrong to treat her with prednisone if she had TB meningitis. Mm-hmm. Um, it wouldn't be wrong to treat her. So, I mean, that would be certainly a therapeutic consideration. I'd have a low threshold to do things, especially in the face of a progressive neurologic problem and no other etiology. I just don't want us to like lose sight of like our ranking in the first place was that this could still be infectious. Yes. Yeah. So like how like pre-test, post-test probability of sending these particular tests, like how much did that adjust things? We've not excluded infection, which can cause abnorm- weird abnormal blood work. Mm-hmm. We still have to think about those things that's not excluded. Mm-hmm. So uh, now we just, we're just now juggling the rank order of our diseases. So with three seizures now and the blood work we have now, would you guys treat her? And if so, with what? Well, I've already committed to treating her. So, yeah. and, and I'm usually hesitant on, on pulling the trigger, but I treat her with corticosteroids, but not stop, as, as we've heard, not stop investigating for other diseases. I agree. I think I would treat her with steroids as well. The like more I looked into whether you could actually make infections worse with steroids, the less I felt like you could in most of the cases, especially with if we're thinking about TB being on the differential, I feel like more likely to help than harm her, I think. 
I feel like we need a a piece of this woman, a biopsy of the something or other, a lymph node, or I don't know. We could treat her. I just I think I really don't know what we're treating. I'm very uncomfortable with treating this. Lady. I'm very uncomfortable, but I think. If I were looking after her and she came in this way and then had a seizure and then another seizure and another seizure, I think I'd be looking to do something. Uh, I don't. That's the wrong way. I'd be looking to try and, even though it wasn't my first choice, I think I'd try and treat her. Because I think if anything, like she hasn't gotten better, she's maybe gotten worse. Well, I think she has got worse. Mm-hmm. I think we've talked about this before on the podcast, but the infections that you really worry about giving steroids to is actually a relatively small list. Mm-hmm. Chronic steroids, 100%. That is like not good for anyone. Anyways, worse if you have some kind of chronic infection. It's used for many types of infection, always as long as you're also using the treatment for that infection. Um, certain fungal infections, chronic use of hepatitis, in hepatitis B patients. Uh, there's a really good paper by, I think his name is Stephen McGee from Seattle, that actually talks about steroid use in infectious diseases and does this awesome review of which are which are the infections that like legitimately get worse. I think the status of steroids for sepsis, that is complicated literature. I would say I, um, I'm curious what the room thinks because I don't, I don't really work in the ICU as much anymore. The evidence showing that steroids worsen patients with sepsis is sparse and in certain populations improves certain type certain patients with certain aspects of sepsis so even in like the sickest patients is steroids likely to make them worse usually no and with that as like the the floor for whether to give someone steroids when you now have some some helpful serology or like a way to maybe tie the story together i think i would be very comfortable starting steroids as long as we are really not not committing to the diagnosis of a connective tissue disease just yet i think steph's totally right like we have tissue that we could make disappear by giving steroids so i would try and sequence things and get things done as quickly as possible so we don't miss out on important diagnostic opportunities so at this point um neurology rheumatology and hematology all sit down at the table to decide you know should we give steroids and as you alluded to should we go after tissue first and and the joint uh, consensus i guess at the end of the day was let's start steroids see if it helps prevent further seizures and then at this point i should also mention she's had uh, three negative afbs now um and so rheumatology actually says let's give her methylprednisone and give her a pulse dose and then uh, and then move towards uh, prednisone in the coming days so what happens with her is she doesn't have any more seizures for the next two days and then now on day six of her admission she has another uh, seizure of the same type so rhythmic jaw contractions and this time she does not break out of it so she goes into status she is intubated brought down to the ICU so ha- have we started prednisone or not she's on she's uh, on methyl, methyl pred yeah, yeah. She's on methyl. did dem neurology have any comment on whether we needed to send uh, CSF for their mitogen panel and the autoimmune antibodies yes so that was not sent initially but after this event when she's been taken down into the icu they did uh, suggest the mitogen panel and it's been sent off to calgary and sorry did neurology at the time suggest 
anti-seizure medication before this all happened? With the first uh, few on the ward prior to methylprednisolone, um, the, uh, there was no uh, recommendation about starting anti-epileptics, but now that this has happened, she was loaded with phenytoin and actually started on Keppra as well. So she had three seizures and they didn't recommend? No. Wow. Any thoughts at this point? Now she's in the ICU, uh, she's in status now, and, and then now she's been started on two anti-epileptics. Any other thoughts about what we can do next? You know, I'll tell you what I, I would do. This is this may be real heresy at this point, but given the fact that she's deteriorating as quickly as she is, and going back to our original description of the CSF, recognizing that the CSF, this is not the, the usual CSF for connective tissue disease, I would go back to the original thought, and I would start anti-tuberculous therapy. <laughs> you read my mind. Dry cough, albumin of 21, weight loss, pancytopenia, I want, yeah, I still want a lymph node biopsy and a bone marrow biopsy and all of that. She's a lady who presented with fever. I realize the serologies are all crazy, but mm-hmm. I don't know. I still don't think this old lady has a rheumatologic condition. And I know that sounds crazy. I just don't. <laughs> I, I think, like, that is a reasonable standpoint if you're saying, like, okay, we gave as much steroid as we can. Patient still worsened. Maybe we just started it a bit too late and this person was kind of their condition was bottoming out anyways and we didn't catch it it doesn't feel that way it kind of feels like we made this person worse mm-hmm. and we definitely need to chase down some of these other abnormalities but if someone has some sort of b-cell disease they can get all sorts of crazy um, abnormalities on on their serology and then those are just the tests that we sent what about like the other serology like maybe we get the mitogen panel back and everything's positive and we go <laughs> all right that's helpful. This is all nonsense. Let's mm-hmm. stop li- li- listening to the serology. Let's follow the, the course that the case was sending us on in the first place. That's going to take a week to get back. I do still want the antiphospholipids, even though we're, we are maybe swinging back infectious. Yeah. I think that's really important. That does potentially change the treatment. Yeah. So maybe steroid, when you give steroids and someone gets worse, you have to say like, was it just not enough mm-hmm. or was it too much? Mm-hmm. And that can be so hard to sort out. But we, even with pulse, we still have to consider that too much, not enough. Did we need to give something else at the same time? So yeah. that's what I would wonder is maybe we didn't actually make her worse, but her disease is getting worse mm. and we still haven't adequately treated her because there are things that wouldn't respond to that dose of steroids. And maybe you need to kind of more immunosuppression potentially to solve this. But that's a really difficult thing to call. I, I don't mean to, to, to raise the next issue because we're, we haven't come there yet, but this is the inevitable next issue in my mind, and that's the discussion of HLH that uh, will come along as, as, she, uh, as she progresses. And there'll be someone looking at her ferritin, and they'll say, oh, by the way, and here we go. So it'll be, it'll be a discussion that doesn't have a resolution, but it'll be a discussion. And, and we... I don't think we totally closed the loop just on her heme problem in general. Like, this lady had flow cytometry, presumably she had protein electrophoresis. I just, I didn't hear or at least write down those results. Like, something like Waldenstrom's could be, you know, again, it shouldn't present with fever like that, but the seizures would be, like, just a, you know, a, I don't know. Okay, so a couple of those investigations are ordered in the ICU. The lupus anticoagulant panel is negative. The uh, soluble IL-2 um, test is 1600 with the upper limit of normal being 840. Uh, and no other tests were sent on that front. Um, and then to your point about the serum protein electrophoresis, this is also sent in the ICU and it shows a polyclonal gamma increase, but no other abnormalities. So I guess what I'm hearing is like, there's some infection is still there, 
or are we not immunosuppressing enough and this is just this still sticking along the autoimmune side? And I think um, at this point, the team feels that steroids were not enough. Let's talk about cyclophosphamide and let's talk about plasma exchange. What do you guys think? No, I, well, to, yeah, I would not. I would not start cyclophosphamide. I wouldn't think about rituximab. I'm not. We already don't know what we're treating. This doesn't seem to be a solution to find out what we're treating. We still have investigations that we can do, which I think we've already talked about. So um, hematology says, you know, and in discussion with rheumatology, we're like, this is fairly like confident that we're talking about lupus cerebritis here and that um, doing a bone marrow or uh, doing a lymph node biopsy or getting tissue would be something that they could revisit if, you know, we try other things and this doesn't work. So rheumatology and hematology actually say, like, why don't we try cyclophosphamide at this point? Because she's in the ICU, she's still in status. She's on, I think now they've added phenytoin, Keppra, and uh, Lacosamide, uh, as but still not able to get complete birth suppression. So she gets a dose of cyclophosphamide, and then she worsens from a respiratory perspective. So hypoxemic respiratory failure, chest x-ray with worsening bilateral infiltrates, and then respirology gets involved. Finally. Finally. I think it, it like, j- just... Just to make this clear, that yeah. like this is not us. Like we do not want to criticize the teams yeah. who are taking care of these any of these people who mm-hmm. we ever talk about on the podcast. Like mm-hmm. this is all the day after you know yeah. we we get to look back in retrospect and yeah. make a lot of comments, and we have a lot of information laid out really nicely by uh, the presenter. So I don't want any listener yeah. to to feel quite that way. Mm-hmm. But we do have opinions about how these things were done, yeah. and we weren't there. Absolutely. That being said. I think like we had so many, we, we actually have these other opportunities to diagnose before treating. Mm-hmm. Sometimes you don't and, and it's, it's way too late and you have no option but to pick a treatment and stick to it mm-hmm. or pick two treatments and stick to it. So say, you know what, Th- this to the infectious disease or internal medicine team, this sounds like TB anyways, even with all the negative um, serologies and stuff. Can we please treat with TB therapy? What are the risks of that in this patient? Relatively low? Great, do that. While you give cyclophosphamide for a really unusual presentation of lupus. Like, could it be lupus? Yes, but so could everything. Mm-hmm. So, like, we, this person needed a bone marrow biopsy and a lymph node biopsy for our sake, like, for diagnostic purposes. And we don't, like, yeah. if we give cyclo and we give plex and stuff, and we wait, mm-hmm. and we are maybe diminishing the results of our investigations. Mm-hmm. So I might have sequenced it differently. Yeah, that's a really good point. You know, thinking about at what point do we treat, and if so, what are we leaving uh, on the table as opportunities? So what happened? What, what did respirology do? So they did a bronchoscopy. Um, the samples are positive for Mycobacterium tuberculosis, and she gets started on uh, RIPE therapy. Unfortunately, because at this point she's also still in status epilepticus and very difficult to suppress, and now that TB has become reactivated, so to speak, um, she develops multi-organ failure and uh, comfort measures are taken in the ICU. So. I don't know. For me, like, what made you guys think, like, you know, TB is certainly still really high on the differential, and should we have chased that further? It's always easier in retrospect, but any other thoughts? Well, let me say that Danny's absolutely correct. We're here dissecting a case that's already been presented. The information's been presented. It's not the drama of the case that we're actually dealing with as well. It's not our anxiety or the other aspects. And we're pretty focused on the understanding that we're going to be looking at information and it's not going to be a straightforward case. So, mm-hmm. so I think 
in not in fairness, but that's the observation, and I certainly would agree. It's uh, it is not for us to criticize. On the other hand, that I think everybody around this table, when you started the presentation, I would include all of us would have thought TB was high on the list, and I think that to to Steph's point, it fit the clinical picture better than anything when we first heard the case. We got distracted a little bit by other pieces of information, but when we went back to the original presentation and our original thoughts, I think TB, there was more supporting evidence for TB than there was distracting evidence. Mm. Yeah, and I think if you look back to, to kind of risks and benefits, obviously TB treatment is not without risk. Those drugs can have many side effects. But when we were at a point of using cyclophosphamide, which arguably maybe has greater risk, Mm -hmm. maybe at that point would have been a time to kind of give pause and think about yeah, go back, look at all that information, and mm-hmm. think what do we have that suggests this kind of more rare diagnosis versus also a rare TB, but one that maybe we do actually have more supportive evidence for. Yeah, I, I think in retrospect, the diagnosis, I can see how like the diagnosis of lupus is very attractive because there uh, there was pleural effusions, pericardial effusion, Raynaud's, and this pancytopenia, as well as like very striking serology. And I can see how, I don't know if, what dissuaded you from that more so than the TB? Is there anything specific you thought about or that wasn't convincing enough? I think that pan positivity is mm. is a bit of a red flag just to say like, okay, antihistone, like everything's positive. Like, okay, is there another explanation for positive serology? I think that's kind of part of knowing the test that you sent is mm-hmm. like, well, what are the other things that make this positive? Mm-hmm. Um, I'm curious what like her rheumatoid factor was because like that can be strongly positive. Yeah. Like, w- like the... Uh, all of the extensive serology, but in someone presenting with SIRS, who cares that they're hypocomplementemic? Mm-hmm. They're SIRSy, mm-hmm. SIRS sepsis, right? Like, who cares that they're, they're pancytopenic? Mm-hmm. That's part of potentially bad sepsis. So some of these things just, you, you could, the Venn diagram is overlapped so much that, yeah, I think both of those things could have, of course, ended up being the diagnosis. But I think there are some things that were concerning like i think it was more unilateral lymphadenopathy yeah that's a bit unusual like that's not what i would expect in lupus Mm -hmm. it should kind of be asymmetric lymphadenopathy if it's there i i think before you pull the guns or pull the trigger on like really powerful medications that you can't take back i I think you have to do the diagnostics that are available to you Mm -hmm. i i absolutely could see myself in a different situation having done exactly the same thing as that team like i i i don't think there was eh, this is a tough case like i I don't know that there was a way to to definitively logic your way totally out of lupus yeah all these things could be Mm lupusy but having said that i think there's there's a comfort level about using corticosteroids for any one of a number of reasons where there's a discomfort by using cyclophosphamide and rituximab which really might compromise, which we already know compromises people. So that, I think that's where the decision point is at this mm-hmm. point. It, it would be very, I don't think anybody here would be uncomfortable about the use of corticosteroids. Also, now that I know the answer, I think when you look back and look at her CT chest with the cavitating, cavitating lung lesions, I think at the top and her origins, then a lot of that kind of is more supportive towards TB than what else, but I, I do agree with kind of getting distracted and taken maybe off that path along the way. But again, so I think that but we were we actually all thought about it at the same time. It's just that 
you know, if we had, the lymphocytosis is a, is is really. I mean, if she this is CT, if, sorry, this is lupus cerebritis. I don't think, Danny, you might. I, I don't think lymphocytosis is a feature of, of uh, lupus cerebritis, but you might say it is. I don't. I, I would have to look at that. Yeah. I, I honestly couldn't say for for absolutes. Yeah. Just to tie things off, so her mitogen panel centricalvary is negative. The very first sputum sample she gave on day two of emission, a month later, is positive for mycobacterium tuberculosis. But the AFB was negative. Yes. Oh, man. Tough case. Thanks again, everyone. Again, I'm so impressed with your ability to think through these really tough ones. And thank you, Terry, for bringing it to us. Thanks to all the listeners for joining us for this awesome case. We'll see you again soon. Thanks for having me. Thanks, Terry. Thanks for having me.